Can you join me <coughs> in thanking the worship team for, uh, for leading us in worship this morning? It is a, a privilege um, to be able to, to be with you this morning and to look at God's Word together. My name is Tim Spies, and I'm one of the elders here at Pillar. Um, and this morning we're going to examine the Word and let it examine us and see how God calls us into the life of His kingdom. But before we get into our passage this morning, I wanted to say a few words I've been thinking about this past week. What's happening in Ukraine right now is tragic and angering. And I, like many of you, have felt burdened to pray for peace and mercy and justice in this situation. This war, along with many other circumstances, whether global, national, local, or personal, can make us feel helpless or alone. It can make us feel confused and heavy. Yet simultaneous to this, I've been struck by how exciting and inspiring it is to see men from our church body handle God's Word every week from this pulpit for the last two months. I've also watched with eagerness as the leaders of our women's ministry have labored over the preparation of the upcoming Adorn Women's Retreat. I've seen people around the world come together and pray for world events, welcome refugees, raise funds. It's easy to see the pain and suffering and to despair. But we hold our clear-eyed acknowledgement of the effects of sin and evil alongside our recognition of God's beauty and active work in our lives and world. Would you join me in prayer as we pray for our world and, and our time this morning? Father, we come before you painfully aware of the effects of sin in our world. We are grieved by the war in Ukraine, by the death of men, women, and children. We think of the cities of Mariupol and Kharkiv and Kiev and Mykolaiv and, and others. We ask for your help your intervention, for you to bring peace, to preserve lives, and to change hearts. We pray for the millions of refugees that have fled their homes, that you would provide for them. Lord, there are global implications of what's happening on the ground in Ukraine, yet we know that you are in control. We know that you love your creation. We know that sin grieves you, and we know that you yearn to restore us. We cry out to you now. We beg for your power to intervene and make yourself known. Yet amidst the scenes of violence, open our eyes to the places that you are actively at work. It is easy, Lord, to focus on the bad and be blind to the many places that you're working. Help us to be a people that can both grieve at what grieves you and be driven to action while also rejoicing at your love, presence, and provision. Lord, send your spirit as we examine your word this morning. We ask that you speak to our hearts, humble us, and give us a hunger for your truth to be applied radically to our lives. In the name of Jesus, amen. Would you rise with me as I read Romans 6, 12 through 14? We continue this morning in our 
Gospel Clarity series in Romans, Romans chapter 6, verses 12 through 14 says, Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Serfdom was the reality for the majority of the inhabitants of medieval Europe, and continued to exist in the Russian Empire until the mid-1800s. While many of us learned vaguely about what serfdom was in high school or college history, by way of a reminder, serfdom was a condition in which a tenant farmer was bound to a hereditary plot of land and to the will of his landlord. The vast majority of serfs in medieval Europe obtained their subsistence by cultivating a plot of land that was owned by a lord. This was the essential feature differentiating serfs from slaves who were bought and sold without reference to a plot of land. The serf provided his own food and clothing from his own productive efforts. A substantial proportion of the grain the serf grew on his holding had to be given to his lord. The essential additional mark of serfdom was the lack of many of the personal liberties that were held by freedmen. Serfs were often harshly treated and had little legal redress against the actions of their lords. They had to fight on behalf of their lords or support the Lord in various other pursuits. This was a brutal and often helpless existence. Now, imagine with me that you are a serf bound to a small plot of land on the edge of your lord's massive estate, which borders another massive estate with a river in between. Your lord is brutal, selfish, harsh, and destructive. He demands your service in his pursuits to expand his control. He punishes you when you don't produce the amount of grain he requires. Meanwhile, you're barely able to provide for your family under these conditions. The Lord is the single most powerful figure of authority in your life. He controls more of your present actions and future opportunities than anyone or anything else. While not a king in the traditional sense, functionally this Lord reigns over you and his other serfs. Friends, the way the Lord oppresses the serf in this illustration is the way sin oppresses us. Sin is the Lord in this illustration. It is greedy, controlling, demanding, harsh, and destructive. Sin demands that we satisfy its desires, that we obey its passions. Last week, Cody did a great job laying out our new identity in Christ. As Romans 6.4 states, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Our identity has changed drastically. From slaves to a greedy and selfish master, our body of sin, we have been freed. We are no longer defined by our sin, but we are bought by Christ's blood. This is incredible news. 
It's cause for joy and celebration. But do we stop with a heart full, basking in our new identity? Paul says no. Now, I'm not downplaying the power of this new identity. And I'd argue that we need to deliberately spend time sitting and considering the significance of what Christ has done and how God's constant engagement with humanity, His deliberate patience, His patient goodness, His atoning sacrifice has changed the trajectory of our lives into eternity. However, in this passage we're looking at this morning, Paul exhorts us to not stop in embracing our new identity, but to dedicate ourselves to our new life in Christ. This is the significance of the word therefore in verse 12. Our new identity invites us to action. It beckons us to take one step followed by another, then another. It whispers to us not to remain where we are, but to deliberately commit, pledge, consecrate ourselves to what this new identity means in practice. This is our main idea this morning. As one who identifies with Christ, actively dethrone sin and enthrone Christ. I'll say it again. As one who identifies with Christ, actively dethrone sin and enthrone Christ. As we look at these three verses, this main idea is driven home with three points. Number one, Christ frees us from bondage to sin. Number two, we now have agency. Number three, we are always serving someone or something. In these three verses, Paul shows us that while we were slaves to sin, Christ's sacrifice frees us from the chains that left us mired in sin. Jesus breaks these chains and gives us a choice to commit our lives to this new identity, enabling us to enthrone Christ and live a different, liberated life. We sang about it this morning. Two of the three songs specifically mention chains and sin's power over us. Because the reality is whether we are serving Christ or something else, we are always serving someone or something. As we dig into the first point, look with me at verse 12. Verse 12 says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. This verse is directly tied to the preceding verses in chapter 6. Our new identity in Christ, that Cody's demands were met, who called the shots without being challenged or questioned. Paul uses this word, to describe sin's influence on our life. It isn't some pesky nuisance. Sin wants to control our heart. In preparing this sermon, I read The Mortification of Sin by John Owen. Many of you know, but Owen was a Puritan theologian and originally published this book in 1656, roughly 365 years ago. Well, I know what it means to be mortified. I had to look up the word mortification Does anyone here use the word mortification in their day-to-day speech? Not yet. Good one, Alex. It's typically not a good sign if you need to look up a word in a title of the book in your native language. Anyway, one of the definitions of mortification is the action of subduing one's bodily desires. 
Mortification is the action of subduing one's bodily desires. While the Old English makes this book challenging, and it is challenging, believe me, there is gold in here that directly relates to what we're discussing this morning. On this point of dethroning sin through Christ, Owen writes, mortification from a self-strength carried on by ways of self-invention unto the end of a self-righteousness is the soul and substance of all false religions in the world. Friends, don't buy this lie that seeks for self-improvement without Jesus. The Holy Spirit's work through Jesus' saving sacrifice and God's sovereign power in our lives is the only way that we unseat sin from a position of authority in our lives. You see, prior to seeing our need for Jesus and accepting his precious gift of salvation, we are helpless slaves to sin. We are beholden to sin's power, its desires. Sin elevates the self to God, seeking self-gratification and self-worship. Sin wants us to seek our own pleasure. And so it sits on the throne of our heart, directing our thoughts, our desires, and our inclinations. It has been in that position for so long that we often forget that it's even there. We accept that these thoughts and desires and longings are our own, and that because of that, our world tells us that they must be good, or at least natural. But they're not. They're killing us. Sin is killing us. Sometimes slowly, and sometimes quickly. But Paul tells us in Romans that sin always leads to death. Yet there's hope. Point two is that we have agency because of Christ's saving power. Paul exhorts us to prevent sin from reigning in our lives. This means that it is possible, through Christ, to not let sin reign in our lives. This isn't some cruel wordplay where Paul tells us to do something that's impossible. As much as we might feel that way in the struggles of our day-to-day, Paul writes that through Christ we are freed from this bondage to sin. Yet being freed from sin does not necessarily mean that we immediately start acting as freed men and women. We still have the habits and mannerisms from our time in bondage. Brothers and sisters, it is possible to profess that I am a sinner in need of Jesus' saving power and believe that Jesus died on the cross for me, thereby freeing me from sin's power, but still voluntarily allow sin to sit on the throne of my heart. Let me say that again. You can be a genuine believer in Jesus and still voluntarily allow sin to sit on the throne of your heart. I say voluntarily, but this could manifest itself in a few different ways. Number one, it could manifest itself through unconsciousness. We don't think much of our sin. Or, fully see its destructive effects. We don't realize how sin still reigns in our hearts. Number two, maybe through laziness. We know we should be more active in rooting out sin in our lives, but we don't know how, or we don't want to put the work into revealing it and digging up the root. Number three, maybe through fear. We know that sin will not leave the throne of our hearts easily. A tyrant rarely does. 
It holds on to power as long as possible, threatening, bargaining, and making the change of power as difficult as possible. Some of us may not be up to face this challenge. It no doubt would be difficult, painful, and costly. Some of us are afraid of this cost and what it will mean practically in our lives. We ask ourselves, won't Christ change us more gently over time? Number four, maybe sin remains on the throne of our heart because even though we love Jesus, we love sin more. Sometimes we are flat out unwilling to give up areas of our heart. We may have dark corners where an idol is set up that we mark as a no-go zone for the Holy Spirit. Let's look at an example. Merriam-Webster defines selfishness as being concerned excessively or exclusively with oneself, seeking or concentrating on one's own advantage, pleasure, or well-being without regard for others. On the contrary, Scripture calls us to be selfless, to deny ourselves, to love our neighbor as ourselves. We are all familiar with what selfish looks like in other people, but do we see it in ourselves? If we never examine our motives or expectations, we will be unconscious of the subtle way selfishness shapes how we engage with others, how we spend our time and resources, or pursue our own pleasure. Or do we see that we're selfish, knowing we should address it deliberately, but choose inaction instead? Because it's easier. Maybe we're afraid of how uprooting selfishness will change our lives. Will it mean less toys for me? More discipline financially? Giving more of myself to others? That sounds hard and exhausting. What if God asks more of me than I'm willing to give? Or maybe selfishness feeds our desires so even though we may know that God wants to remove the sin in our life, ultimately is entrenched in a way that supersedes our tangible and embodied love of God. Which of these may describe your relationship with sin in your life? Friends, as long as sin sits unopposed on the throne of your heart, you will obey its passions. That's how tyrants work. While they reign, their desires and pursuits are not up for negotiation. Yet, Christ frees us from the chains that bind us of sin's tyranny. And he doesn't stop there. He then places a sword at our side, which is the Holy Spirit, and gives us a clear path to the throne. What will we do next? Will we sit in our place of bondage as if the chains are still on us? Or will we pick up the sword and move toward the throne, bent on unseating the tyrant that sits there? Christ will not remove sin from the throne of our heart for us, but he has freed us and empowered us through the strength of the Holy Spirit to do it. When Paul says, let not sin reign, he is saying we have a choice and is calling us to action. We are not to sit idly by passively hoping for the Holy Spirit's transformation if we are not willing to take action ourselves. 
Owen writes, to kill a man or any other living thing is to take away the principle of all his strength, vigor, and power so that he cannot act or exert. Indwelling sin is compared to a person, a living person called the old man with his faculties and properties, his wisdom, craft, subtlety, strength. This, says the Apostle Paul, must be killed, put to death, mortified. If I tell one of my kids to not let the dog eat any table food, what is implied? Will they sit idly by and hope for the best? Hopefully not. I would expect that they will take action to prevent the dog from eating table food. Maybe they will forcibly remove the dog from the kitchen. Maybe they'll have the dog lay down away from the table and occasionally cast firm glances its way to remind the dog that its order remains. Hopefully they'll remove the food from the table when they're done eating, because I don't know about you, but my kids usually don't eat their whole dinner. And put it in a place that the dog can't reach. Regardless, these are all deliberate actions to ensure the dog does not eat the table food. Who here has wrestled away a Labrador as it lunges for a hamburger on a plate or rips food from its mouth before it can woof it down? I have. This illustration shows that not letting sin reign in our heart is not a passive desire. It's an active one. And it can be hard, messy, and combative. Once we're free from sin's power, we need to be active and willing participants with the Holy Spirit to unseat sin, to dethrone it, to bring it low. And friends, this is not a one-time occurrence. It's not a quick coup that transitions quickly to peace and prosperity. No. Sin always wants to rule us. And so it will saunter or crawl back to the throne of your heart if you allow it to. The third point is that we all serve something or someone. We cannot offer our time, talents, and hands to something that is not on the throne of our heart. We should not speed past examining ourselves and just look at doing the right things. That's getting things backwards. All this talk of serving someone or something may be chafing some of you. I think this fact is especially difficult for American Christians to internalize. I was half joking with a friend recently when I said that we make individual liberty an idol in American Christianity. Our collective obsession with individual liberty has so infused us with a mentality that we are our own masters, that we are often blind to the things that we serve. But verse 13 provides a clear dichotomy that reveals how our bodies, minds, and hearts are designed to give themselves in service to something. Look with me in verse 13. It says, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Paul directs us not to offer ourselves in service to sin, but to God. This is redemption come to life. A practical picture 
of Christ's restoring power. Rather than use our mouths to make ourselves look good or to speak behind someone else's back, we can use it to give glory to our Maker and Redeemer, to speak truth and love to one another, to challenge and encourage one another. Rather than use our eyes to lust or objectify, to covet luxury, or as the medium to consume violence, we can use them to view and appreciate creation and creativity. Rather than use our hands to harm others or in service of an evil cause, we can use them to serve others, to help, to love, to protect. In addition, our eyes, or our ears, minds, and hearts are all parts of who we are that will be in service to something. The word present in verse 13 is supposed to evoke the idea of an offering. We are called to present our bodies, our God-given talents, our time. The achievement of God's purposes is not contingent on our actions. However, Jesus made clear that he was ushering in God's kingdom and that we are invited into this grand mission. Our members are the tools God is using to build his kingdom here and now and to fight his enemies. In the process, serving God through the usage of the talents and gifts He's given us glorifies Him. Let's return for a moment to the illustration we started with. You're a serf living under a brutal lord on the edge of his massive estate. Now, imagine you've had enough. You cross the river into the neighboring lord's estate, settling there. This new lord who owns this land, gives you a wonderful welcome and charges a lot less rent than the other one. From time to time, your old lord threatens to send his henchmen across, but he is afraid of your new master. Your new master gets you to help with his work, which is quite different from the battles your old master used to drag you into. Your new master is building schools and hospitals, helping those in need, and sometimes he asks you to bring your tools and help in the work. It's an effort, but you're glad to do it. The old Lord lives right across the river. You can see his estate. You remember his tyranny. And you are still under threat of his reach. Yet the new Lord wants your best and uses your talents and tools for his good ends. In verse 14, Paul returns to the fact that we're no longer under the law, but under grace, and that sin's hold on us has been relinquished. Our presentation of ourselves to God stems not only from what Jesus has already done, but now Christ's sacrifice and atonement for our sin will not have dominion over us in the future. This is a promise of the longevity of Christ's love. In the past few years, Mary and I have read through the Chronicles of Narnia, Any uh, Narnia lovers out there? This is a series, um, a fantasy fiction series written by a well-known Christian author, C.S. Lewis, that serves as an allegory with deep spiritual truths. In the book, Prince Caspian, Caspian is the rightful heir to the throne of Narnia, but his father dies while he's still a young boy. As a result, Caspian's uncle Miraz assumes a regent role, ostensibly 
holding the throne until Caspian grows up and can be crowned king. However, Miraz isn't interested in a temporary position. See where I'm going with this? He slowly and craftily establishes himself as a king, as, as the king. Miraz is not a legitimate Narnian, and he rejects many of the things that make Narnia special. Most importantly, he does not acknowledge the existence of Aslan, the good lion who created Narnia and rescued it from ruin. The one seated on the throne is a phony. And Caspian wages war against his uncle to reestablish Narnia to its proper place. He, along with his friends and true believers in Aslan, face hardships and difficulties as they seek to dethrone Miraz and enthrone Caspian. It isn't easy, but it's important, and it's right. Dethroning sin from our heart takes deliberate effort, and it can be costly. So even though we've looked at a few illustrations this morning, what does it mean to dethrone sin and enthrone Christ? This is kind of abstract. Our life group has been going through the gospel-centered life, a little study book, and one of the chapters talks about heart idolatry. It says that surface sins are only symptoms of a deeper problem. You see, gossip is a surface manifestation of one or more of the following. The idol of approval, the idol of control, reputation, success, security, or respect. We need to learn to repent of the sin beneath the sin. In order to determine what our heart idols are, the book suggests we ask, what do I love, what do I trust, or what do I fear? For example, if I fear being single, being in a relationship will probably be my idol because it promises to deliver me from the hell of singleness. Practically determining who is on the throne of our heart requires us to set aside some intentional time to reflect on our motivations and our desires. What do, we what do we prioritize? What do we worry about? How many of us set aside deliberate, undistracted time to examine ourselves, to critically look at our heart, at our intentions? The psalmist, King David, in Psalm 139 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is David asking God to help him strip away the pretense and see himself clearly so that he can serve God fully. David is reflecting on his thoughts and actions and comparing them to God's law and character. He wants to see himself for who and what he is so that he can repent and worship, and serve God without a barrier or distraction. Likewise, we should develop a practice of self-examination to determine who or what is enthroned on our heart so that we can go about the work of dethroning sin and enthroning Christ. Earlier, I gave four reasons for why we may allow sin to remain enthroned on our heart. Unconsciousness, laziness, Fear and the love of sin. 
Here I'll mention a few things we can do tangibly as we go from here. Number one, I just mentioned self-examination. This is critical. Sin is crouching at the door. We need to be on the lookout for it. Number two, this may be controversial, but I think that areas where we display laziness is reflective of a weak commitment. When we're serious about someone or something, we alter our lives to pursue that thing or person. We see this in our own lives, our hobbies, our spouses, our kids. We don't keep living the way that we were before. We alter our lives. If we're not serious about it, it's easier to not change. Are you serious about Christ? Has He gripped you? Has He saved you? Has He changed you? Then the rhythms of your life will reflect that. Number three, at its surface, fear is an understandable reason to not confront sin. It costs us. The struggle against sin is difficult and can be painful. That does not make it unnecessary or not worthy of the struggle. This is where a biblical community to come around us, support us, and encourage us is vital. We can't do it alone. We need one another. We need the people in this room. We need our life groups. We need our friends. While fear of sin's power is understandable, we know Christ has conquered And our brothers and sisters around us can help remind us of that when we forget. Finally, if we love sin more than Christ, we do not know Jesus well enough. The spiritual disciplines of dwelling in God's word and engaging with him in prayer changes our heart to the point where sin is not as desirable as before. Therefore, dedicate time and effort to knowing and engaging Christ. So to recap, spend time to self-examine. Make practical changes that reflect your commitment. Surround yourself with believers and dedicate your time and effort to knowing Christ more. This passage shows us that we are good creations of an all-powerful and loving God but we're marred by sin that wants to enslave us. Yet God has pursued humanity throughout history, desiring our restoration, and ultimately sending His Son to serve as the perfect sacrifice for our sin. Jesus' death on the cross satisfied God's holy wrath for our sin and conquered death when He rose on the third day. By recognizing our sin and brokenness, and turning to Christ's saving power, we assume a new identity, which then calls us to dedicate ourselves to what this new identity means practically, to unseat sin from a place of control in our life. As we enthrone Christ, we offer our body and mind for God to use to bring about His kingdom. This is the gospel. It isn't stale or static. It's active and dynamic, calling us to action today for God's glory and His purposes. For those of you that believe and have trusted in Jesus as your Savior, we'll have the opportunity in a moment to remember Christ's sacrifice and celebrate His victory 
over sin and death as we take the Lord's Supper. The elements are in the back. If you didn't grab them on the way in, you're welcome to get them here shortly. For those of you that have not put your faith in Christ, this can be a reality for you today. We encourage you not to take the elements, but to consider how God is working on your heart and respond to him this morning. Please pray with me. Jesus, we are so grateful that you've set us free from the bondage of sin, giving us a choice to follow and serve you. Help us to be willing and active participants with the Holy Spirit in the act of dethroning sin in our lives. Transform our hearts and bodies to love and serve you. And use us as you usher in your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.